the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. And Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. No. And today is April 15th, which 70 years ago was a very historic moment in the history of baseball, but more so, I think, in the history of the country. Jackie Robinson took the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers for the first time on April 15th, 1947. Now, in honor of that day, we're going to have Ed Henry on, National Fox News correspondent, and he's written a book about Jackie Robinson faith 42 and we'll be talking to ed henry about that but on top of that as you know we've interviewed sometimes we've interviewed some old baseball players and we're going to play clips of three of the baseball players who played with jackie robinson back in the ebbets fields days one randy jackson two roger craig three bob aspermani and they all had their own particular relationship with jackie robinson we'll explore that later in the meanwhile the first part of the show was usually about estate planning and elder law and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount we need to pay legally in taxes, avoiding throwing, going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. So we got two email questions on there. Beth, what's the first one? Well, the first one is from Evelyn from Cambria Heights in Queens. She says, My mother is in a nursing home, and I've lived with her my entire life. What can I do being that the house is in her name alone? Okay, well, if mom's going to a nursing home, the average cost of a nursing home right now in New York is approaching $15,000 a month. Now, hopefully mom is mentally competent because if mom's mentally competent, we can put the house in a trust, avoid probate on the house, but most importantly, Medicaid, if they pay for mom's nursing home bill, assuming she doesn't have the money to pay that $15,000 a month bill on her own, cannot put a lien on the house if we avoid probate and if we have a child living in the house for more than two years. Now, technically, the law says that your child has to provide care to the parent, but that's usually a problem we can easily solve. So hopefully mom's mentally competent. And this gets back to one of the things that I stress all the time in our estate planning meetings. Sometimes it's a very good idea to think about doing a PAV attorney so that if mom is not mentally competent, Somebody else can sign her name. And the problem is, if mom is not mentally competent right now, we may need a court order to get the house switched over. One, that's up to a judge. Two, if there are other brothers or sisters who are going to fight that, we could have a problem. And number three, the judge just may say no. So 
if you plan in advance, think about a PAV attorney. If you And a PAV attorney, I'm not talking about the form you get off the Internet or the form you get from the bank or the form you get from your financial plan or a real estate lawyer. Sometimes those are good forms. They allow you to pay bills. They allow you to do things. But what they don't allow you to do is transfer a house, let's say, worth $500,000, $800,000, put it in the trust, protect that house from nursing home bills, and avoid probate and get the house out tax-free. Now, I probably haven't spent enough time talking about this over the last few months, but the New York State estate tax has gone to $5,125,000 as of April 1st. So if you're under $5 million today, you're a New York State resident, you can get virtually all your assets out tax-free tax free through a trust. We avoid probate, save the house from nursing home bills, and again, it goes out tax-free. So if you own a house, if you own real estate, the best way to take care of that house is in a trust agreement. You know, a lot of people every once in a while, they say, well, why don't I just give the house to my son, give the house to my daughter? You know, I'm not worried about what they're going to do. That could happen, but your son could die before you. Next thing you know, you're in partnership with your daughter-in-law. That's not always good. You know, plus tax consequences. Again, we can get everything out tax-free for $5 million. If your children don't live in the house, maybe they're not going to get it out tax-free. And sometimes I see, you know, parents just gave the house to their kids. Parents paid 50000 for the house. It's worth a million dollars when the parents die. Kids go to do their taxes. They receive the house in a gift. They got a 300000 400000 capital gains tax they have to pay when they sell the house after mom and dad gone. I'm assuming the kids don't live in the house. And, there, you know, there's always an exception to every rule. But for the most part, if you own real estate, the way to avoid probate, the way to get the house out tax-free, the way to save the house from nursing home bills is through a trust agreement. All right, we got another uh, question, right? Yes, we do. And this one's from Brooklyn. Justin from Sheepshead Bay. My dad sold his house and gave me the money from the sale to take care of him. Now he needs home care. Do I have to give it back? Well, if he needs home care, assuming he's in New York, you don't necessarily have to give it back. Um, in New York, one of the benefits of, living, of being a New York City resident, well, New York State resident, but the laws are more liberally applied in New York City, if Dad gave you all the money and he has less than $14,000 in his name today in April, he can apply for home care Medicaid through New York on May 1st, the first day of the month after the gift is completed. And there are a lot of good programs in New York to keep you out of a nursing home. There are programs where you can hire your own home attendant. It may be even possible that your dad could hire you or your spouse to be a home attendant. You get paid $10 an hour at minimum wage scales, but you get good benefits, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, vacation time. And, of course, one of the big things, too, workers' comp and disability is covered. You know, a lot of times I see the people make the mistake. They, play their, they pay their home attendants off the books. And, yeah, nine out of ten times nothing goes wrong. But one time out of 10, that home attendant may get hurt, may have a lawsuit. If, you don't have, if you're not covered by the workers' comp policy, if you're hiring an employee and affected legally, that could be a major headache for you. And again, I know 9 out of 10 times nothing happens. But for that one time out of 10 where something can happen, where a lawsuit develops, your life is living hell. And I've seen that happen a few times. So, you know, if, if you're in that situation, instead of, paying somebody off the books. Think about home care Medicaid. You can hire your own home attendant. The city takes care of the payroll, the Social Security taxes, withholding, workers' comp, disability, gives them some vacation time, and you stay out of trouble. Now, if you don't have somebody that you can hire, if there are agencies that are Medicaid approved, then you can go to one of those agencies that are Medicaid approved 
and they will supply you with the workers. But just there's a lot of good programs in New York to keep you out of a nursing home. And the first thing is if you're over 65 and all your assets are in a trust, irrevocable trust managed by your children, you can apply for home care Medicaid the next month. There is no look-back period. People, you know, this is one of the things that this question touched about. People think that if you apply for home care Medicaid, there's a five-year look-back period. There is not a five-year look-back period in New York for home care Medicaid. The five-year look-back period applies to nursing home Medicaid. If you apply for nursing home Medicaid to pay for your bill in a nursing home, you have to document all your transactions for five years prior to your application for benefits. And I just want to say this again. There are all sorts of exempt transfers. Just because you did something within five years of your application for benefits, you made a gift, does not mean you won't get Medicaid. Their transfers to spouses are exempt from penalty under the five-year look-back period. Transfers to a disabled child are exempt from penalty under the five-year look-back period. I mentioned before transfer of a homestead to a son or daughter who's lived in the same property for two or more years with the parent is an exempt transfer from the five-year look-back period. And transfer of a homestead to a brother or sister, sibling, who's lived in the same property for one or more years, those are all exempt transfers. And all I can say, listen, if you're in one of these crisis situations, your house is at risk, your family home is at risk, please get the right advice. Because I can't tell you how many times people relied on the advice of their neighbors or friends or, you know, I hate to say it, in some cases, general practice attorneys. And, you know, people end up losing their house or they're having liens on their house. If you're in a crisis situation, please feel free to give us a call at Connors & Sullivan. We don't charge for the initial consultation. The first consultation is free. And we have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and Manhattan. Okay, I guess we're going to take a short break. And at the end of the break, pretty soon we're going to be talking to Ed Henry about Jackie Robinson. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, April 25th at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth, Queens, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. On Thursday, April 27th at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03. 
Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach, Queens at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. and at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens on Friday, April 28th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500, or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Okay, well, welcome back to Ask the Lawyer. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about Ed Henry, about Jackie Robinson. Again, today, April 15th, 1947. First time Jackie Robinson took the field as a Brooklyn Dodger. First time the color line was uh, broken in the 20th century. Now, what some people don't realize, there were a number of African-American ballplayers who played in the 19th century, but Cap Anson, who was the most powerful baseball player of the time, um, was a northerner, um, just would boycat if he had to play with any African-Americans. And his boycat in the, in the 1880s worked, so it took another, whatever, 60, 70 years before the color line was broken in 1947. So we'll be talking to Ed Henry about that. And, you know, talking about baseball, let's remember our buddy Ron Hunt. He underwent uh, open-heart surgery yesterday. Hopefully he's doing okay, and our prayers are with him. And, you know, Ron Hunt was probably, you know, one of the hardest-nosed baseball players for the New York Mets, and I know he's a fighter, and hopefully he's going to be fighting back before too long. And I know he wants to come back on the show, and I know I want to talk to him. So I don't think Me that's too. I don't think that's going to be that far in the future. Now, again, we haven't been talking a lot about estate planning tonight because we're going to be talking baseball. It's the again the 70th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking the color line in Major League Baseball. Um, but if you want to, if you have any questions about estate planning, elder law, we're doing our seminars next a uh, week from Monday in Queens. We're going to be in Howard Beach. We're going to be in the Adrian Bayside. I'm going to be in Connolly's Corners in Massbeth. If you can't come to one of the seminars, there's no problem. You can give us a call at 718-238-6500. You can schedule your own appointment. We do not charge for the first consultation. The initial consultation is free. And the main focus about estate planning, I would say, for the majority of our clients is what to do with the house. That's the major asset. But listen, you don't own real estate. That doesn't mean you can't do estate planning. We'll talk it over. If nothing else, we want to make sure your affairs are straight, that you have a will, a power of attorney, if there's family members you can trust. You may want a health care proxy to have somebody make medical decisions if you can't speak for yourself. These are all important documents. If you want to come in and talk it over with us at Connors & Sullivan, please feel free. We have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. I guess we'll take a short break right now. We'll be back in a few minutes with Ed Henry. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. 
I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Connors Corner. Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. April 1947, very important event happened in Brooklyn. To help tell us what happened in Brooklyn in 1947 is National Fox News Channel correspondent Ed Henry. How are you doing? Great. Great to be on with you. Okay, so what happened in April 1947 in Brooklyn? Well, of course, Jackie Robinson trotted out to first base. He later moved, of course, to second base, but on April 15th, of 47, he played his first game, and uh, a lot of books have been written about it. A great moment, not just in baseball history, of course, but civil rights history, American history. Uh, and I chose to write this book called 42 Faith because I actually wanted to rewind the tape two years earlier in 1945 in Brooklyn, where I learned a little bit of new information, a little historical twist, which is that most of the books and movies and whatnot that have been written about Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, have made it seem like Branch Rickey was so religious that he was dead certain that it was the right thing to do to integrate baseball and never really wavered. But I found some new information suggesting that right before he signed Jackie to his first contract in 45, Rickey had a secret meeting with a minister at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights where he revealed he had some second thoughts. He had some cold feet. He wasn't sure if he could really go through with it. Uh, but by the end of this meeting of pacing and praying and, and talking to this minister, he decided it was the right thing to do and that he was prepared to take the plunge. 
And this learning this new information sent me on a journey to kind of figure out how much of a role did faith in God play, not just for Branch Rickey in making this big monumental decision right there in Brooklyn, um, but also how important of a role was faith in God for Jackie Robinson? Because he was somebody who was a kid who came from a broken home. He joined a gang when he was uh, a teenager, and it was a Christian minister out in Pasadena, California, that actually pulled him out of the gang and said, you're going to waste all this athletic talent unless you get your life in gear. And so I wrote this book because I think it's a, it's a book that baseball fans will love, and I certainly love baseball from New York. Um, and I'm jealous of the people who grew up in the 40s and 50s watching three fabulous teams duke it out um, with, with the uh, Dodgers, Giants, and Yankees. But I also think if you're serious about your faith and it's a subject that uh, matters to you, uh, this is a book, 42 Faith, that you're going to really love. Okay, now this is an aspect that really hasn't been covered before. You know, if you watch 42, the movie, I don't think there was that much about faith in that movie. No, if you remember, there's one line that's that's pretty humorous. I, I have no evidence in all of my years of research that it was ever uttered by Branch Rickey, but Harrison Ford playing Branch Rickey says, I'm a Methodist, Jackie's a Methodist, and God is a Methodist. We can't, we can't lose, right? I mean, it sounds almost too perfect. It's very Hollywood. And that's the way they handled it. I mean, if you also think back to that meeting in the movie, 42, where Harrison Ford is sort of beating up on Jackie Robinson and saying, you know, they're going to shout the N-word. They're going to do this. They won't let you stay at the hotel. They won't let you eat at the restaurant. And tried to provoke him. Um, at the end of that, the point of it was that he wanted Jackie to know that, yes, you need to be courageous. Yes, you need to fight when you need to fight. But most of the time in the early years of this experiment, and it was an experiment. They didn't know it was going to work. And thank God it did work. Um, Jackie couldn't really fight back because it would blow up the whole thing. And people would say, oh, he's an angry black man, and he can't take it, and, and he's really not able to play with white players. It's absurd now to think back to how people fought. But I think Branch Rickey realized that Brooklyn and New York City was uh, the ultimate melting pot, was then, is now, uh, as you know better than anyone. And this was the place for the experiment. This was the moment. Um, and so at the end of that, other meeting. I told you about the secret meeting with the minister, but at the end of the other meeting in August 45 in Ricky's office where Ricky was trying to provoke Jackie, remember what he said at the end of that? He said, you need to turn the other cheek. Um, that's, that's the history of it. And that reminded me that there were all kinds of layers of faith in this story from both of their childhoods, both Ricky and Robinson, right through their days with the Dodgers. And I think that's what bound them together. They had almost nothing in common, different races, um, different regions of the country they came from, different generations, but they were bound together by baseball and faith. What was Branch Rickey's background in 1945-46? You know, he had been with the Cardinals before as an executive. He was a very shrewd executive, won a few World Series, and also, people may forget, created the modern farm system. So this whole idea that the Yankees and the Mets have minor league teams that feed the big club talent, that was started all by, by Branch Rickey. But there's another moment that people don't know a lot about in the early 1900s. He grew up on a farm in Ohio, uh, as I mentioned, a Methodist. His parents were very religious and instilled that in him early. And he went to his mom and said, I want to be a big league ball player. Most people don't know that about Ricky. They know him as an executive. Uh, but he played big league ball like Jackie did as well. But his mom initially said, no, all ball players do is drink and swear and chase women. And so Ricky, undeterred, slept on it, came back to his mom and said, Will you let me chase my dream to be a big league ball player on one condition, that I never play on Sunday? His mom thought about it and said, okay. And so he did become a big league ball player, never played on Sundays, one of, one of many reasons why 
uh, he was eventually cut out of the major leagues. In other words, that he was a light hitter. He had a bad throwing arm, and he was a catcher. If you're a catcher, you need a strong throwing arm. But also, when he was a world-famous general manager for the Dodgers and working with Jackie Robinson, Carl Erskine, and Ralph Franklin, and all the rest, he still did not go to Ebbets Field on Sunday. He was this guy with this larger-than-life presence, the cigar chomping, the bow tie, the hat, you know, the whole thing. He was a real character. But he wouldn't go to Ebbets Field on Sundays because he wanted, even after his parents had died, because he wanted to honor that promise to his mom, and he wanted to honor her faith and his faith. I think it says a lot about Brent Tricky's character. Jackie Robinson, 1945. Tell us something about him at that point. Well, in 1945, Jackie Robinson uh, had just been in the Negro Leagues. He played for the Kansas City Monarchs for just a few months. And he really wasn't the best player. Uh, in the Negro Leagues. There were guys like Satchel Paige, you know, a great pitcher who, when he got to Barnstorm, did, didn't really get his crack at the big leagues until he was in his 40s after Jackie came up. Uh, but he would be able to strike out Joe DiMaggio and all the rest on these Barnstorming tours. Uh, you had Josh Gibson, a great catcher, who hit all kinds of home runs, tape measure shots. Uh, he didn't get his shot. And then you had Cool Papa Bell, and I don't know if you remember him, but he was the guy who was so fast as a Negro Leagues player. The legend was that on the road, he'd get into the hotel room at night turn off the light switch and before the room got dark he'd be under the covers in bed getting ready to go to go to sleep uh, i think that was probably a slight exaggeration uh, but it gives you an idea that there are other players maybe with better talent but nobody had the combination that jackie robinson had which is that he was a four-letter man at ucla basketball football baseball and track and field that was the first time anyone had done that at that great athletic uh you know institution uh and uh even after you know, putting it all on the line on the gridiron on Saturdays for the UCLA football team on Sunday mornings, he would still go and teach Sunday school at the same Methodist church where he had grown up on in Pasadena. Why did he do that? Because there was a minister there named Carl Downs, Reverend Carl Downs, who pulled Jackie out of the gang. He had been in a gang because he was raised by a single mom, didn't have a father around, uh, joined this gang. And this minister said, you better pull yourself out of this gang or you're going to ruin all this athletic talent. Jackie listened to him and it left enough of an imprint that number one, Jackie still taught Sunday school, as I mentioned at UCLA. And number two, his wife, Rachel Robinson, who's still alive, remembers that Jackie, uh, every night in that rookie season of 1947, he'd come home from Ebbets field. And before he went to sleep, he'd get down on his hands and knees and pray. And that was something his mom instilled in him in Pasadena. And so I think Jackie Robinson was someone who had very deep faith. He didn't wear it on his sleeve the way Branch Rickey did, but I think it, it really mattered to him. It was in his heart. It was in his soul. And I think it made a difference in terms of him turning the other cheek against the abuse. But also, you know, how do you sustain yourself? How do you rise above all of the attacks, all of the slams? Uh, you've got you to have a faith in God, and I think that that was sort of the secret sauce here. We're talking to Ann Henry about his book, 42 Faith, about Jackie Robinson, Branch Rickey, and the breaking of the color barrier in the 1940s. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, 
then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We're talking to Ed Henry about his book, 42 Faith, the story of Jackie Robinson. What was the kind of abuse? I think some of us have a hard time understanding what, what could pe- well, people were like the back movie, then. Yeah, I mean, the movie 42 got into it a little bit. Um, there was a manager for the Philadelphia Phillies, Ben Chapman, who, you know, in one particular game was, I mean, I don't want to repeat some of it, but, you know, some of it that I could repeat. You know, he basically said, go back to the jungle and, you, you know, why don't you come over here and shine our shoes? You know, typical stereotypes of the 40s uh, that somebody might shout at, at uh, a black person maybe on a, on a street or something. But the idea that it happened on a ball field, um, pretty remarkable. And I think ironically and, and thankfully, um, it, it turned around on people like Ben Chapman. Some of the white teammates on the Dodgers who had initially been skeptical of Jackie joining the team, they were they were revolted. You know, they, they they were in revolt over this. The idea that an opposing manager would say these awful things about their teammate. So it sort of led them to kind of rally around Jackie. Uh, and so I think some of the attacks backfired. But but when you ask, you know, beyond just verbal abuse, which is bad enough, Jackie's life was threatened many many times. And in fact, on opening day, 1947, that you asked me about at the beginning. There was a credible report that there was going to be a sharpshooter somewhere outside Ebbets Field on a building or somewhere, uh, and and somebody wrote a letter and pro- or a phone call and promised, you know, you put Jackie out on that field, I'm going to gun him down. And the players were briefed on it before the game. And Ralph Branca, who just passed away a couple months ago, big, tall, white pitcher, a white teammate who you might have thought, well, maybe he's not on board with Jackie. He made a show, actually, of standing next to Jackie during the opening day, uh, you know, announcements where they – introduce all the players uh, on, on the field. They typically do that even now. Um, and rather than run from Jackie, Branca stood right next to him. And after the game, one of Branca's brothers came up to him and said, Ralphie, what in the world are you thinking? They wanted to shoot Jackie. And he just looked at his brother and said, there are worse ways to go than to stand up for your teammate. And so that, that might get lost in this sometimes too. There were, yes, some, we can't whitewash history. There were white teammates from the Deep South who um, circulated that petition in the spring training of 47, saying, if you promote Jackie to the big club, we're going to walk. And that was awful. Uh, And that backfired as well, by the way. Um, But then there were white teammates like Ralph Franca and Carl Erskine, who's one of the only living Brooklyn Dodgers, 90 years old in Anderson, Indiana. I interviewed him several times. 
uh, a joy to do that. He's still sharp as a tack, has some wonderful stories about those old days of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he also has a strong Christian faith like Ralph Franca did. And Erskine stood up for Jackie Robinson early. So we can't whitewash the fact that there were people who did not stand up for Jackie. It was not all uh, sweetness and light. But there were other teammates who certainly rallied to his side. and that, That's one of the points of my book. So if you're a baseball fan, you're going to love it. How did Jackie Robinson get a – I mean, there were a lot of great players in the, in, for the Dodgers in the 40s and 50s. How did he get along with the other stars on the team? You know, Pee Wee Reese started out as being one of the skeptics. He, he was the captain of the team um, and obviously one of the best players. And they ended up getting along famously. Uh, Reese was – sort of ha- might have had a cold relationship at first because, remember, Reese was serving uh, in the military – uh, at the end of World War II, when Jackie was signed uh, in, in 45, and word got to his ship as he was coming back to America that the Dodgers had just signed a black player to a minor league contract. And one of his uh, shipmates said, Pee-wee, here's the most amazing part. Um, he's a shortstop. And Pee-wee stopped thinking, wait, I'm over here serving for my con- serving my country. And they might have not just hired a black player, but a black player to replace me. And Pee Wee later told, um, like Larry King, for example, the broadcaster who wrote the uh, introduction to my book, uh, he told Larry and others in his later years that he felt bad, Pee Wee, that he initially didn't want Jackie to join the team. And and the reason was pure racism, that Pee Wee was from Louisville, Kentucky, and the folks back home would would say, according to Pee Wee, you lost your job to a black man, except he used a word that starts with N that we don't use anymore. And Pee Wee felt bad about that later because he became one of Jackie's closest friends. So look, I mean, you know, there were teammates that were cold to him, but a lot of them ended up coming over to Jackie's side because they realized uh, he was a courageous man and his, his actions uh, spoke so much louder than, than words. Yeah. You know, yeah, he had a great athletic talent, but this is someone who uh, was dealing with a lot of abuse and yet, you know, excelled on the field and off the field as well. He was known as a, a great team man in the clubhouse. How far does your book go into Jackie Robinson post-baseball career? Or? Yeah, I get into a fair bit in the 1960s. He sadly died so early in 1972 at the age of 53. He had diabetes, and I think, frankly, the stress of being the first was, was too much for him. Uh, but it, I get into a lot of what he was doing in the 60s. Now, people remember that he worked for Chock Full of Nuts because, frankly, back in those days, you know, ballplayers didn't make a lot of money. And even though he was the world-famous Jackie Robinson, he didn't have a lot of dough. And so he worked for Chock Full of Nuts, the coffee company, became a big spokesman for them, an executive, um, and uh, was very proud of that work because Chock Full of Nuts uh, made a big deal about hiring more African-Americans than other companies. And so Jackie was very proud of that. But the reason why I get into his time in the 60s in the book Jackie, uh, in the 60s, gave a lot of sermons uh, in a lot of churches around the country. That's why it ties back into the message of 42 Faith, which is that during the, some of the race riots of the 60s, people were looking for leadership, not just from Dr. King, but from leaders like Jackie Robinson. And I find it instructive as well that Jackie didn't just give speeches on street corners or you know at arenas. He gave a lot of sermons at churches all around the country, not just black churches, churches all around the country. Uh, spreading the message that he believed that the way different races came together was all laid out in the gospel, that it was all about um, being you know, kind to your fellow man, your fellow person, uh, and that it wasn't really to Jackie that complicated. Uh, and he really was getting fed up with the race riots, the long, hot summer of 67, for example. He gave a, a long sermon at a church in New Rochelle, New York, that I quote extensively 
uh, in the book where he said, look, the way you come together is by following the gospel. And that's why I really think Jackie Robinson's faith from his time as a, as a child in Pasadena, instilled in him by his mother, who's very religious, Reverend Carl Downs, who I mentioned before, pulled him out of that gang. Then Branch Rickey also had a faith dimension to his life, instilled that in Jackie as well as a player. And I think long after he had hung up his spikes for the Dodgers, Jackie was somebody who really had a strong faith in the center of his life, and I think it made all the difference for him. I think it's pretty clear why you decided to write this book. What do you think people should take away from it? I, I really hope that people take away that if you're a baseball fan, I've got so many great stories about what it was like in Jackie's first season, uh, not just uh, on the field, but in the clubhouse. And then I go through the 1951 uh, shot heard around the world, October 3rd, 1951, which a lot of your listeners, I bet, will remember and remember well. I spent a lot of time with Jerry Reinstar, for example. He's a character in my book. He's now known as the owner of the White Sox and the Bulls in Chicago, but he actually grew up in Flatbush and was at Jackie's first game. And he talks to me about how and October 3rd, 1951 was one of the worst days of his life uh, as a Dodger. He's now a billionaire, and he still winces uh, at the Dodgers blowing that game against the Giants, Branca throwing the pitch to Bobby Thompson. But what? So I've got a, if you're a baseball fan, I've got so many great stories in here. I talked to Vince Scully, you know, the broadcaster who just retired, who, who just, you know, was close to Jackie and Pee Wee and the rest and has some wonderful uh, tales from the Dodger dugout. But what I want people to take more than anything is that Jackie didn't do this alone. He did this in partnership with Branch Rickey. He did it with teammates uh, like Ralph Franklin and Carl Erskine, who stood up for him when it, when it took a lot to do that because there was a lot of pressure to not support Jackie. And what I found is that what bound a lot of these Dodgers together, the boys of, you know, that we celebrate them as the boys of summer. But what hasn't been talked about out loud a lot is that a lot of these players, Gil Hodges as well, a Catholic, they really had faith at the center of their lives. And so I think it was a lot more than just, you know, beer and the crack of the bat and, and all the wonderful things now that the baseball season is back that, that gets me excited and passion, passionate about this game I love so much. It was a lot more than that for these Dodgers, especially Jackie Robinson. And, you know, one final thought. We really haven't spent too much time on how great a ball player Jackie Robinson was. I mean, today on base percentages, things like that. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, rookie of the year in 47, you know, under all that pressure, uh, so many uh, years that, you know, he was stealing bases. And, you know, I talked to Larry King, I mentioned that he was at a lot of Jackie's games, and he talks about the way that Jackie just simply mesmerized the fans and would basically have the other team pull, pulling, literally pulling their hair out because if he got in a pickle where he's in, like, you know, the old rundown between first and second, They'd have five, six, seven players trying to run him down, and they couldn't do it. He was so quick. He was just so quick, uh, and, and he brought that. You know, we talk now about these five cool players who hit for average and hit for power, and they can run, and they can field, and they can throw. Jackie was was almost the original five-tool player. And, and I also talked to the, the son of a late sports writer who's very close to Jackie, who reveals that Jackie, before he was elected to the Hall of Fame, felt bad because he said, I don't want to be elected. I don't want to be inducted into the Hall of Fame as the first black player. I just don't want to be. And and this sports writer, Joe Reichler, kept telling him, Jackie, you're getting in for both. Yes, the fact that you were the first, the fact that you left such a mark on, on America, not just baseball, that, that's a reason to get in the Hall of Fame. But your numbers are fabulous. You know, your, your, play, your play out on the field merits being in the Hall of Fame. And let's not forget, as a final point, you know, when you compare him to DiMaggio and Ted Williams, I mean, Ted Williams lost time as well because of the Korean War, and we should note that, but he still was able to hit 521 home runs. Jackie didn't start when he was 
18 years old, like a Bryce Harper, a modern-day player uh, for the Washington Nationals. Uh, he, he didn't start uh, you know, early enough. He came up when he was 28 years old simply because he was a black man, simply because he did not get an opportunity. You think about adding eight or ten years to anyone who looks it up right now on Wikipedia, Jackie still has good numbers. You add eight, nine, ten seasons to that, he might have had one of the greatest careers of anyone, but it was robbed of him simply because of his race. I don't want to dwell on the negative part. I think the best part and what I want people to take away from the 42 faith more than anything is Jackie rose above all that negativity and, and stood up, you know, not just for his teammates, he stood up for his race uh, and, and was a class act. And I think that's the legacy he leaves more than anything. The name of the book, 42 Faith by Ed Henry. Thank you for writing this book. We look forward to reading it. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you again. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ed Henry. Now, we thought to enhance the interview a little bit, we'd be talking to some of the baseball players who talked to Jackie Robinson. And first, we're going to start with the third baseman from Arkansas who battled for Jackie Robinson for the 1956 starting job at third base for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Handsome Ransom Jackson. I'm the man again. Now, that Brooklyn Dodger team, I mean, you had some great ball players there. Gil Hodges, Pee Wee Reese, Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Don Newcomb. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it used to be uh, when you went to uh, to play in Abbott's Field, you start out the game one run behind because of these guys. You know, they had the best team in the league, obviously. And uh, so uh, it uh, to play there, you kind of had to work harder. And and uh, to play with them, it just you know it was just hard to believe. When I was traded, uh, we went to spring training, and uh, Jackie played about half the games, and I played about half the games. And of course, sports writers were asking us every day, "How you get along? How you get along?" Well, you know, Jackie Robinson's a great guy. We got along fine. So we came in the night, uh, the day before the season started. Walter Olson called me in, and he said, "I'm gonna start Jackie." And I said, "He's been here so long." And I said. Well, I said, Skip, I don't blame you for Pete's sake. Uh, he's a great, great player. He's established himself. Uh, I'm glad you told me, but uh, I mean, I, and I agree with you. So he started Jackie, and about Jackie played for about a month and just had a hard time. And so he put me put me in, and for the up until the All Star game, uh, I was batting fourth for the Brooklyn Dodgers, and I was in hog heaven. And uh, we were winning games, and uh, we we did something that no other t- team has done one night in Philadelphia. We were behind 5-2 to two in the bottom of the ninth, and Reese walked, and Snyder hit a home run, made it 5-4. to four. I hit a home run, made it 5-5, to five, and Gil Hodges hit a home run, and we went home. And we researched that, and we found out that it's never been done in Major League history. Uh, it, they have three three home runs in the bottom of the ninth, but it's no, never had consecutive home runs to win a ball game in the bottom of the ninth. So we did that. But anyway, at, at the break, I uh, turned off the knob in my house. I was leaving in the porcelain knob, broke out, broke off in my hand, and cut my thumb down to the bone. So uh, Jackie took over after that, and he played most of the, last part of the season did good he came he got better and then uh he played in the world series i just uh i i, I think i pit, pinch it three times 
But I was doing good there for a while until something happened to my hand again. Okay, well, that was Handsome Ransom Jackson. And this is one of the stories that impressed me the most about Jackie Robinson. This was from Roger Craig, who was the opening day pitcher for the New York Mets in 1962, winner of a World Series game in 1955 and 64. Right. And, of course, what, 61 years ago you started with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, my first game in the, in the major leagues and the first game I ever saw in the major And I pitched a complete game victory. After the game was over, Walter also walked up to me and said, "Kid, you got to go to you know, your family in Montreal." I said, "My wife and baby's up here." He said, "Well, uh, go back. You can, you're glad to go back and get your wife and come back, and you're not going to pitch for four days. Back we pitched in the fourth day on it." And I'm asking how to get to the airport, and people said, "I said," and one guy was telling me, "said Well, you got to go take the L train and go underground." Do so. What do you mean I got to go underground? And I was trying to. Talking to somebody about you know how to get there, and Jackie Robinson walked up to me. I'll never forget it. He said, "Come on, kid, I'll give you a ride." I sort of on my way home, and I got in the car, and I was so nervous being around him and knowing what all he'd been through and been from the South myself. And uh, but he never said a word about himself. He talked. The only thing he talked about was the game I pitched and what he thought was that I had a chance to be a good major league pitcher and be around a long time and all. And then I found out later on. That he didn't. That, that was not on his way home. He went out of his way to to uh, take me home. I never forgot that. In fact, I'm looking at something right on my desk here uh, about a day to remember the pride of Brooklyn, and that was what it was. That's dated and uh, from Dave Anderson. You remember him, sports? This is a, this is when he picked me up. Yeah, took me out there. But he was a great teammate, and uh, I mean, he was a great man. You know, a lot of people don't realize that. When he signed a contract, before he signed the contract, Branch Rickey told me, he said, now, before you sign this, i got to tell you something. He said, yes, sir, Mr. Rickey. He said, you know, said, you're, he said, you're not allowed to fight back. And he said, what do you mean? He said, I'm too big. A, I'm a, been a great competitor. I can't quit doing this. Well, you're going to have to for a couple of years till you get established. And he did that. But once he uh, actually, he, I got there in 55, I think he came up and, I don't know, 48 or somewhere in there. And uh, But once he got settled and, and had a little experience and played two or three years there, then he started to fight back a little bit. And it was a different story because he, he was such a great competitor. He wasn't afraid of nothing. I've seen him a couple of times. He'd get knocked down and he'd turn around and catch a, tell that catch. He said, he told the catch, he said, Tell him not to do that anymore. If he does, I'm going to run up his back. And if some of them do it, he'd bunt the ball hard towards the second base from, and the pitcher to go field the ball, and he'd run right over that pitcher going to first base, go out of his way to do it. But he, a lot of things he did uh, that was so, I mean, he's just such a great, he, went, he couldn't run that good, but he was a great base runner, especially stealing home and going to extra base. I remember in the World Series in Ebbets Field, he had a double to, to left field, I forgot who was playing left field for them. Anyway, he kind of rounded second base, and he threw the ball behind. The, he threw the ball to second to the second baseman behind him, and Jack had just walked to third base. He was just that intelligent as far as base running was. was. But he was he was a great man. He's too bad he died so young. I think he died when he was about fifty three. We're going to have to take a short break. We're talking baseball with Roger Craig. 
Roger Craig, we got Randy Jackson. And then the third player we interviewed who played with Jackie Robinson was another guy who ended up playing with the Mets, the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Mets. But in between, he had a pretty long career with the Houston Colt 45s, later the Astros, and that's Bob Aspermani. You, you know, you were the main stalwarts of that old Houston Colt 45 team. Plus, you're probably one of the, you, you, I hate to say it, but you're one of the few guys left alive who uh, played Nebbets Field. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I got some great photos of that. I, I just look at that. When they took those of the Brooklyn Dodger photos, and remember, we won the pennant that year. And one of the greatest things that happened after that game was over, I had a guy named Jackie Robinson hug me so hard I would not let him go. We were, I mean, I was so, this young kid was just uh, stereo-eyed over all of this, and Jackie just made me feel part of it. Okay, so three stories about Jackie Robinson. There was another story Bob Aspermani told us about. When he was first working out at third base, Jackie Robinson came up to him and said, you know, hey, kid, where'd you get that glove? And he says, well, that's my glove. He says, well, that's not good enough for the major leagues. So Jackie Robinson went to his locker and gave Bob Aspermani his, his second glove so he can work on it for the major leagues. So there's a couple of stories about Jackie Robinson. I think one of the true great heroes of American history and baseball and let's not forget that book now, Ed Henry, Faith 42. Is it already out? It's out, yeah. I, we haven't gotten a copy yet. I haven't read it yet. But uh, it's out. And if you like baseball, you like history, and even if you don't like baseball or history. It's a great you know, story. It is a great story, and he's a great man. I don't think there's any question about it from those three guys we just talked about. And, of course, remember Roger Craig. We are talking about this in 1955 when he came up to pitch. You know, like he said, he was a guy from Durham, North Carolina. He wasn't sure Jackie Robinson would, you know, accept him as a teammate because of all the problems Jackie Robinson had from other white Southerners. But there he was, his first game in the major leagues, Jackie Robinson went out of his way, you know, to help him. He saw the individual. You know, I don't think Jackie Robinson cared where you were from. He just looked at you as an individual. Okay, so we look forward to reading reading the book by Ed Henry, Faith Forty Two, about Jackie Robinson. Now, good Methodist. Yeah, well, Hog Heaven. <laughs> what does that mean? I mean, I, old Ransom Jackson they're talking about he was in a Hog Heaven, and outside of the times I've been to Texas or Louisiana, I've never heard that term. You've never seen a, <laughs> a, a hog in his in his in his, just rolling around in the in the dirt and just being happy as he can be. That's hog. It doesn't take much for him to be in hog heaven. He's just want it's a pile of soft, wet dirt and a bunch of food. Okay, Facebook. We've yeah, got we have a Facebook. I think we got about eleven hundred, twelve hundred likes Hooray. on our Facebook page now. Why should somebody do it, and how does somebody do that? Okay, you want to do it so you can see who's coming up and see the the past people. We have the podcast that you can get on, and and then we also have a YouTube channel that has all of the the podcast. Because sometimes it's like the you might want to go back and hear Roger Craig's all the way through. You might want to say, you know what. Um, Ed Henry's got this great book out, and if you're like me, you may not remember everything that was just said in the in the interview. So then you can go to our YouTube thing and listen to the the um, the interview again. You can also tell your friends how to get on it. 
So you can go YouTube, you can get on Facebook. Facebook is much nicer because it shows the pictures of the people. Um, and we're so fortunate because um, a lot of the people that have been on the show, they're our friends. And so we've got photos with them and um, Ed Bars, God bless him, he stayed the night with us. And um, he got to see some of my husband's toy soldiers. And they had so much fun. And we have a great picture of that. And that's going to be up on the Facebook page. So um, the Facebook page just makes it fun. So uh, you need to be on Facebook. You need to have your own Facebook page. And then you look for us. And then you like us. And then you get all the fun stuff. Okay, well, again, for those of you who missed Ed Bars at the Civil War Roundtable, I know there were a lot of people there. You missed another great event, and we had the, the honor of hosting Ed Bars at our house. We had so much well, fun. Oh, he gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning <laughs> because it's time to milk the cows. But we still love them. Oh, thank you, everybody. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 